Welcome back to Those Happy Places, the podcast that treats theme parks, rides, and attractions like literature. I'm Buddy Duquesne. And I'm Alice White. And Alice, guess what? What? It is time for another Those Happy Places classic of an episode where I come up with a thing about theme parks that I think is interesting and yell about it at you. (laughs) Uh, for like 40 to 45 minutes, and then we accidentally invent a whole new terminology for describing a theme park phenomenon, uh, and, you know, enshrine ourselves in the halls of history as uh, theme park luminaries and, uh, you know, scholars of the art form of themed entertainment. (laughs) Yes, naturally. A classic. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just a classic format of an episode, a totally normal one, uh, (laughs) not, not unique or special in any way. We do this all the time. We've done it a million times already. Everybody out there is already 100% ready to hear what we're about to hear, and I'm sure that it is about to be published in several uh, newsletters, articles, and, uh, of course, uh, actual books. I was going to say, yes, and academic journals. Um, Yeah, journals. Absolutely. Because today we're talking about a concept that we've liked to talk about in the past, Um, an idea that... um, and a theory that we've been working on for a minute um, all about the idea of land blender rides at Disneyland specifically. Once again, we're back at Disneyland, California, talking about something that we've noticed over time and we'd like to uh, explore it with you, our dear listeners. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, okay, so of course we're back at Disneyland, California because that is kind of our home park, very near and dear to our, our hearts, but it, it does kind of feel like Disneyland is the premier example of this phenomenon, the the land blending. Sure. Um, and and that's that's interesting because Disneyland is also the premier example of a theme park that is built out of like distinct lands, right? Right. So Disneyland has very distinct lands that when it opened were maybe even more distinct than they are now. Um, various parts of the park that have um, a genre built into the design, to the music, to the smells, to the type of attraction that is available. Uh, You've got Adventureland, you've got Frontierland, you have Fantasyland, you have Tomorrowland, and now we have New Orleans Square, Critter Country, Galaxy's Edge, and of course, Toontown. (laughs) Can't forget Toontown. Uh, Right now, if you look this very moment at the Disneyland app, you can forget Toontown. Uh, <laughs> it is literally wiped off the map. It is a bunch of trees uh, right now. It's actually kind of like upsetting. I was scrolling through in preparation for this episode, just trying to like remember how Disneyland fit together, and it's not there. Oh, that's uh, devastating. Toontown but it is, is under, a delight. It's under uh, uh, quite the, um, you know, uh, drastic refurbishment so toontown forward or toontown next or whatever it's being called uh it's supposed to be very cool when it's finally done but if right now you can forget about toontown oh shoot uh. well forgetting about toontown the <laughs> other the other lands um some of which were open have been open the whole time since disneyland opened in the 50s um some of them are newer um, but the idea has always been that disneyland is built a little bit like a wheel with spokes on it and there are distinct carved out spaces for different genres of uh, adventures and storytelling and um, and those lands, while, while they all still exist, um, because Disneyland is is smaller than other parks and, uh, and if it wants to expand, it kind of has to build on top of itself to expand. Um, we've seen a little bit of blurring of lines between some of these uh, these existing lands and the addition of new ones. Yeah, uh, the thing that made me think about this this concept the most is actually like three very distinct examples of attraction that I feel like fit within more than one land or that like don't really fit within either land or that like by their design aesthetically attach themselves as kind of a border attraction between lands that mends kind of the the gap between them and i think that's really interesting and that's what we are calling a land blender ride (laughs) 
<laughs> Hence the topic of the episode. Yeah. Um, so, Buddy Decane, this was your idea. And it this is. was your concept, and you yes. were the one that pitched it to me, despite yes. my uh, initial maybe backlash against it. I've come back. I've come around to uh, some of your ideas. So why don't you introduce maybe like a really good, really obvious example of what we're talking about? Sure. Uh, and before I begin, of course, I'd like to say that when I introduced this concept to you and you pushed back a little bit, of course, that was like welcome and like very good. And it <laughs> made the theory stronger oh. uh, as all good academic discussion does. We we bring each other bold ideas and then we fight each other about them until they are good. Um, <laughs> and so the Land Blender concept uh, first appeared to me in the form of a classic Disneyland attraction that I feel like we talk about every dang episode of this show. <laughs> and that attraction is the Pirates of the Caribbean. I which love is, that ride. Yeah, and it, it's having something of a renaissance on this show because just... Last episode, it uh, beat out the Haunted Mansion in terms of capacity. And rides featuring pirate-style boats became our new ideal for ride capacity. Um, but here I'm not talking about capacity or, or logistics or anything like that. I'm talking about theming specifically. Uh, because Pirates of the Caribbean, classic attraction, everybody loves it. Uh, a+, plus, no, no notes, just a, a perfect gem of a ride. Uh, it exists in the New Orleans Square portion of Disneyland. Uh, that's where its entrance is, and that is where a lot of its uh, themes lie. Uh, for example, the opening scene of the attraction is at a boat dock in a swamp. It feels New Orleans through and through. Uh, the Blue Bayou restaurant might as well exist on the coast of a river delta in New Orleans, right? It, it just feels right for that land. Right. However, and this is where things get a little interesting, Alice, I would like to uh, offer you a pop quiz. If you were to be reading a classic novel of piracy or uh, watching a film about the pirates of the Caribbean... Uh, what genre would you say that that novel or film uh, takes place within? Hmm. Huh, that's an interesting question. I mean, if we're watching Our Flag Means Death, it might be like a comedy romance. Um, <laughs> but I would say generally, most pirate films, Pirates of the Caribbean, among others, would uh, classify themselves as adventure stories interesting and there is a certain sort of adventurousness to pirates in general setting off on a ship to uncharted lands never knowing quite what you're going to encounter along the way plenty of swashbuckling and exploring and searching for treasure treasures and interacting with legends and finding new and interesting local peoples with which to exchange. For me, Pirates of the Caribbean actually has very little to do with New Orleans beyond its opening scene, and of course its closing scene, because they are the same scene. <laughs> um, for me, Pirates of the Caribbean is way more drawn towards these themes of high-flying adventure on the high seas, and Spanish colonial towns and tropical islands with hidden cave systems and stuff like that. That all feels way more adventure to me than like what we see in the rest of New Orleans, which is, you know, haunted mansions, gumbo restaurants, and jazz bands. It is thoroughly different. And the way I see it, Pirates of the Caribbean as a narrative uses New Orleans as a jumping off point as a matter of convenience to allow us to delve into adventure with salty old pirates. And it's sure we've been coming to the proper place because there are squalls ahead and Davy <laughs> Jones waiting for them as don't obey, right? So like we've got like a whole shift in tone that occurs over the course of just the like opening moments of this iconic attraction. Sure. And Alice, for me, what makes this so interesting is that Pirates of the Caribbean is in New Orleans Square, 
not necessarily of New Orleans Square, and Adventureland is visible directly behind Pirates of the Caribbean. And that connection has actually been reinforced over time as that bridge has been built to kind of bridge the two lands. I see Pirates of the Caribbean as sitting on the border between these two lands and serving as a, a tonal bridge between them. A land blender, if you will. <laughs> In hey, fact, that's I the will. name of the episode. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a really good example and like your strongest, I think, example of a of a land blender ride. Um, I think that the connections might be a little deeper than just like the opening scene taking place in uh, in a bayou somewhere probably in or around New Orleans or or Louisiana in general. Um I'm sorry, New Orleans. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes, that is how it's pronounced in Disneyland. New Orleans is a real place. New Orleans, New Orleans. is the fictional town that exists only within, you know, Disneyland. <laughs> yes, of course. According <laughs> New to Square. according to the um to the uh conductor of the Disneyland Railroad. Yeah, uh, exactly. Okay, so um so I think the connection is um is stronger. Uh New Orleans New Orleans the real pl- <laughs> the real place, New Orleans. Um as a as a southern port city, definitely um a really old southern port city, definitely had its connections to pirates and piracy and uh it absolutely had its influences throughout the city that it benefits from being a like a, a world-class port town um, right next to some of the most, you know, vivid sceneries of the age of piracy in the, in the Caribbean. In, um, and New Orleans got to see all of that firsthand and it, and it definitely is like part of the city. So when, when Disneyland builds New Orleans Square <laughs> and, um, and flavors it with the things that we love most about New Orleans, the French Quarter architecture, the the bayou, the great big mansions and um, swampy feel. Um, it also, by you know having Pirates of the Caribbean be based there, it keeps it connected to America and like Americana and um, about like the American connection to pirates. And then you're exactly right, acts as a bridge, and we head into, like, the Spanish main and literal, actual literal places in the Caribbean that were colonized by the Spanish, colonized by the British, and um, and saw a lot of actual piracy. Um, and, and we get to see that in the, in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies as well. And, and and all of these different like colonial towns but like New Orleans New, New Orleans <laughs> so hard to keep them straight New Orleans is a colonial town as well of course and and so those influences um, are really strong like visually and like emotionally really strong there's a lot of history there that Pirates of the Caribbean the ride really benefits from and um, makes the whole ride feel deeper and more whole because of its connection to not just the Caribbean, but to New Orleans and that part of America. Yeah. And I think what's so brilliant about New Orleans Square as a themed land is that it understands the romance of New Orleans as this port town, this blender of cultures and peoples uh, and histories And also, it understands the romance of New Orleans as a port town that is also a jumping-off point for adventure. Yeah. It is a a point of debarkation. Yeah, exactly. And so what's so cool about the double feature of classic attractions in New Orleans Square, that being Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion, is that the Haunted Mansion gets to stay there and be steeped within New Orleans and kind of feels local and legendary in that way and Pirates of the Caribbean is a jumping off point into the sorts of adventures you can access just beyond New Orleans um and that's cool like that's very cool cool. (laughs) and of course another thing that makes them like very good double feature wise is that they both have skeletons in them uh and and of course like all sorts of like you know kind of dark kind of spiritual hauntedness to the whole affair. Of course. Um, 
but I think that that kind of duality of like New Orleans the place as its own adventure and New Orleans the place as a jumping off point to adventure is part of what makes that that little crescent shaped area in Disneyland so powerful and that it sits between so many other lands is also really interesting because New Orleans Square itself it has this strong identity in these two great anchor attractions but it's also bordered so many different ways so as to make quite the I don't know interesting sort of uh like piece of Disneyland because there is Frontierland like right there like right there <laughs> and where Frontierland begins and ends is a little bit of a question mark it is because some people would like to say that like the rivers of America are their own thing um especially now that like Tom Sawyer's Island is the is the pirate lair now I think I think um, it might still be pirates. It's I hard think it's to pirates say. Themed. It's so hard to claim that, like the rivers of America, part of the map into as part of Frontierland, which you should. I would argue that it is part of Frontierland and belongs in Frontierland. Um, and the shooting gallery is great, but it's pay to play. It's not like really one of like the attractions over there. If it's really it's hard because it seems like Frontierland doesn't really have any attractions, except of course for the attraction. It has one attraction. And what an attraction it is. And what an uh, attraction it is. Hot take, Alice. And and maybe this is actually just a lukewarm take. Big Thunder Mountain is the premier mountain attraction at the Disneyland Resort. Ooh. That is an interesting take. Honestly, I think that it has, both during the day and at night, because there are different vibes, it has the Matterhorn, Space Mountain, Splash Mountain, all thoroughly beaten. Wow. uh, When it comes to, like, how good of a coaster, thrill ride, dark ride it is, especially after its most recent refurb. I mean, Big Thunder Mountain owns. It's really really good. It is a really good attraction. It feels fun to ride. Uh, The animatronics are solid as heck. Uh, There's new cool projections and steam and smoke effects. Uh, As you go into the final lift hill, there's a drop into water, which is very cool. Uh, Not to mention, uh, you know trips through dark tunnels uh tight turns and like three lift hills alice like this is a (laughs) great roller coaster despite the fact that it's not particularly fast or thrilling it just feels like a great roller coaster it definitely Uh, has a, a lot of really good energy and it's and it's fun and it sets you off on a fun note with the wildest ride in the wilderness and you know and and it's um and it's iconic and it really is the only piece of of like true attraction work that Frontierland has. If there were no Big Thunder Mountain, there would be no Frontierland. It would absolutely just be subsumed by New Orleans Square. Uh, yes, and or Adventureland, have... whoever got there first. <laughs> right, you would have something else there, presumably, that would like give it an identity. Um, and that's interesting. Now, Alice, I want to push back on one thing. I think the Mark Twain Riverboat actually belongs in both New Orleans Square and Frontierland and is a very effective blender attraction. <laughs> I don't disagree at all. I think it is just <laughs> as much of a blender attraction as Pirates of the Caribbean. It's just, uh, it's harder to remember that it's there. Right, that know, and the personally. sailing ship Columbia just kind of going around in circles on the on the rivers of America. It's not exactly like a headliner. It's more like a piece of kinetic scenery that you happen to be able to ride on. Uh, and that's interesting. And we can talk more about the boats of the rivers of America in a forthcoming episode. I think that would actually be very cool. I, I agree. Um, but let's talk about Frontierland's Frontierland problem because there is just that one attraction. And it is absolutely sandwiched between these other iconic lands. And that sandwiching has become even more problematic. But on the other hand, recently, it has also made Big Thunder Mountain into a 
very unique sort of land blender. And Alice, of course, you know at this point that I'm talking about the border between Frontierland and Galaxy's Edge. Right. It's an interesting border. And and, and it's interesting that, that you have claimed Big Thunder as a land blender. I think it's a different kind of land blender than Pirates of the Caribbean, where Pirates of the Caribbean seems to thematically connect New Orleans Square and Adventureland in like the the context of the ride, the location of the ride, the setting, etc., all seem to connect these two lands. Um, Big Thunder Mountain seems to only connect these two lands, Frontierland and Galaxy's Edge, visually. It, yeah. Because like it, it, there's nothing Star Wars about Big Thunder, but visually the um, the ride seems to connect this space in a really interesting way. Yeah, I mean, okay, you can very, very, like, thinly stretch Big Thunder Mountain and say, like, well, Star Wars is a space western, so, <laughs> you know, there was a train robbery in Solo, so it's it's kind of like, okay. but it really isn't. Okay, <laughs> no. let's just let, let these two genres be distinct. Star Wars is its own genre, which is an arguable point, but, you know, agree with me for a moment that Star Wars is kind of its own genre at this point. Sure. Sure, um, it is as much space samurai movie as it is space western. And it is um, also World War II. It's like, it's everything, right? Just, <laughs> it, Star Wars is, it's kind of its own thing. It's also pastiche. We just let Star Wars be Star Wars off in its own little Star Wars corner. But, sure. uh, you know, Frontierland being a representation of all westerns, Big Thunder Mountain is kind of this great example of that. And it does not fit within Star Wars. That said... The area around Big Thunder, when it kind of got taken over and subsumed into this Galaxy's Edge project, and, you know, Big Thunder Ranch became part of Galaxy's Edge, I was worried that there would kind of be this, like, really hard line. But as it turns out, as you are walking around Big Thunder Mountain on your way to the entrance to Galaxy's Edge, which, as it turns out, was my first entry point into Galaxy's Edge when I most recently went... Mine too. It's a, it's a really good entrance, right? Because yeah. you're walking and you're surrounded by these tall red rocks that are very much insp- inspirational to, you know, the original visions of Star Wars. In fact, there are even Geonosian deserts that are very similar in aesthetic. And you're walking through this and the lanterns are very themed and there's plants and desert life everywhere. And then you turn into the tunnel in the galaxy's edge and it's just more rock work. But the rock work slowly blends its way into being Star Wars rocks instead of being Old West rocks. And that slow blending is facilitated by the fact that Big Thunder Mountain is this huge, rocky, outcropping thing that you can also kind of build caves around. And it all looks and feels just right. You're absolutely right. It The blending uh, visually between the two lands here is really impressively done. That you can very seamlessly go from a very typical Western with steam trains and saloons and a shooting gallery and the whole shebang. And you can turn a corner and that seamlessly blends into Star Wars just with a tunnel and a change of music and very little else that changes. It's all still, like you said, like red rock. And now though, that the red rock that you're walking past isn't like a natural canyon formation. It's suddenly an unnaturally like carved tunnel. You can see the grooves in the side of the tunnel where it would have been carved out by like a machine. And then there you are in Star Wars. And, and like, the the walk is the walk is a little plain at the moment. There doesn't seem to be a lot like a lot to look at other than more rock work and like um, a little corner of one of the of the rivers of America as you like cross over a bridge. There's no attractions back there. There's no character meet and greets back there, at least not at the moment. Um, the ranch is like as you said is gone. Um, so there's not a lot to, to like do back there as you're walking, except appreciate 
how the scenery is shaped and how it changes. And it's like they knew. (laughs) They're like, there's not going to be anything else back here for them to look at. So what if we just made it really pretty and seamlessly blended the edges? Yeah. And it's really neat. And what's brilliant about it is in that in that seamless blending there was the recognition that we needed to go from rock work to rock work you know like we needed to go from foliage of one kind to foliage of another kind but not too harshly like the thing is galaxy's edge batu is all petrified wood and rock work with desert e plants because desert e plants are pretty alien looking mm-hmm. and that's incredible the the foresight on that and then the way that, yeah, Galaxy's Edge can back up to Critter Country as well as Frontierland. And it all just kind of works. Um, and you're never, like, looking around and feeling like, oh, yeah, we really harshly stepped into the Star Wars world. I would say that the the one thing that's interesting about this, though, speaking of, like, harshly stepping into har- Star Wars, though is that on my last visit, I left Galaxy's Edge and stepped back into Frontierland, and that felt drastic. Uh, And I I don't know why that direction felt drastic, except my theory is Galaxy's Edge kind of almost feels like a third gate because of how complete it is as a package. yeah, sure, only two anchor attractions, but there's so much happening in Galaxy's Edge uh, that it really does feel like its own thing. And we walked back into Big Thunder Mountain, or like the Big Thunder area, uh, and I was like, oh yeah, Disneyland, we're at Disneyland again. <laughs> I, I forgot, I thought I was at Star Wars Land, this is Disneyland, yeah. all right, cool. Um, but like, the the trip into Galaxy's Edge is perfectly land-blended. And so Big Thunder gets to live in that and gets to be situated there and gets to lend its aesthetics to the landscape. Absolutely. They made a really good choice with Galaxy's Edge by making it tunnels into all three entrances really are tunnels in as like a like a transition period. Because like the tunnel out of Galaxy's Edge and into Fantasyland is like really striking. <laughs> That's like <laughs> that one's really kind of tricky. It comes out like right next to Casey Jr. <laughs> like yeah. it's that one is uh, a little rougher of a transition. But it's good that it's a tunnel because then you really can put yourself in a new mindset as you pass through. And and that is um just a really interesting design choice that they that they made. But yeah, the one from Frontierland uh and in is helped along by Big Thunder and is I think is my favorite entrance into into Galaxy's Edge for exactly the reasons you state. I agree. Now, Alice, I got I got a couple of um lesser examples here, uh but the examples that I think are interesting nonetheless. Uh, for example, uh, have you ever been able to figure out, um, what, uh, It's a Small World is supposed to be a part of? Like, which land It's a Small World is? Is it a fantasy of a a peaceful future for all peoples? Or is it a vision (laughs) of a peaceful future for all peoples, uh, therefore being Tomorrowland? Oh, boy. Um, (laughs) I, um, aesthetically... And um, emotionally, it's a small world belongs in Fantasyland. <laughs> I do like your idea that it maybe is a vision of a of a tomorrow with a with a bright future where all children hold hands and sing songs together. Yeah. Um, I I like that idea. I think um, especially the their various choices of um, paint jobs by keeping it in a cute pastel or white and gold um, uh, paint. I think they're trying to thematically connect it, keep it uh, firmly fantasy land, personally. Yeah, I agree. And I, I was just being, you know, difficult to be difficult you are. because that well, is part of my job on, on this show. You um, just are. <laughs> but, you know, on the other hand, like, It's a Small World doesn't really fit the definition of fantasy, right? There's there's no magic happening here. Uh, you know, we're not following characters on an adventure. They're not learning anything. Um, you do you know, see... 
um, you know, now, now, especially now that they've added Disney characters in it, you've got like flying carpets and mermaids and stuff. Oh, there were always mermaids. Yeah, that's that's, true. that's fantastical. Yeah, the, well, the people of Atlantis needed uh, a representative on this this classic attraction. Oh, um, you were so close. It's a it's like Atlantica or something. Well, that's the Atlantica is from the Little Mermaid, but oh, specifically okay. the the mermaid portion okay. of It's a Small World represents the nation of Atlantis, uh, a very sure, real sure, place sure. that actually okay. exists. Of course, this well, is kind Ariel's of a New Orleans now. New Orleans kind of kind of <laughs> distinction. I was gonna say Ariel <laughs> is actually there now, though. So right. is it still Atlantis or is it Atlantis it and Atlantica have it's kind combined of it's kind of all of the forces? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so it's a small world is an interesting one, and it does sit on the border of Tomorrowland and uh, Fantasyland. Another one that I think is kind of interesting uh, in within Disneyland, as long as we're staying here, I think it's kind of cool uh, and arguably a land blender uh, that the castle is so prominently visible on Main Street, like as you enter. This is a really famous part of Disneyland, right? The forced perspective of Main Street, making the castle appear larger, but also, like, welcoming you in, the trip towards the castle feeling really long because of that forced perspective. Like, it's all very cool. Yes, yes, yes. But, like, there's a castle on Main Street, USA? (laughs) That's odd. And I think it blends really well the ideas of, you know, yesterday and tomorrow and fantasy kind of existing together. Yeah, with this one, I don't necessarily disagree with everything you've just said about the castle and Main Street, like their connection. It definitely is meant to be, you know, the forced perspective walk where the castle looks way further away. And, and like, that's all very specifically designed to be, um, like, very very special to Disneyland and to the entrance to Disneyland that you can walk through a normal place like Main Street USA, just anywhere America, and and then, oh my gosh, what's that in the distance? Is that a castle? Is that someplace magical? Is that someplace I can go? I don't know about calling it a land blender so much as it's a, to me, it's like a, like a, it is like the direct transition between the Main Street area and Fantasyland. It is like I don't think it's meant to be a blend so much as it's meant to be this is the moment where you step through and this is yeah. the, the, I'm going to say the, the word the word threshold rather than blender. Yeah. Um and I think that's cuz cuz it's really important as far as if you if you call Main Street USA anywhere town America it's we don't have castles in America and we don't have like medieval history in America like at all. And to create this this very special place in the middle of Anaheim, California, where you could maybe see a, a you know a, a European you know village and hang out with your fantasy friends Snow White and Pinocchio and everybody. Um, but it's definitely, to me at least, it's meant to be a a very very physical threshold into a new world rather than a blender i i I do agree with you you when i first said this you pushed back and you said uh, something a lot like what you just said there uh and and now that you say it like that i think i do agree and if i if i want to claim that the castle is a blender attraction then i have to claim that about every threshold around the hub at disneyland right so i have to talk about like Oh yeah, that gate over Adventureland and uh the fort and the bridge into Frontierland <laughs> and like oh yeah, Tomorrowland sure does have a have a blender walkway. Yeah, you know, Tomorrowland so... doesn't really have a lot going on. <laughs> it's so funny that Adventureland and Frontierland both do also have um literal thresholds. They have a sign up overhead that you can walk under and then there you are in a new land. Yeah. And I think that yeah, the the signs over Frontierland, Adventureland, and the castle as its own threshold into Fantasyland. Um, I think that's really important to like the spoke of the wheel analogy that we were talking about when we first started this episode about how Disneyland should like you walk down Main Street USA and then look at all of these gateways you can enter. 
Look at look at how many different gates you can go through now with very very physical thresholds. Yeah, and uh, and it is really unfortunate that Tomorrowland doesn't really have one. <laughs> it's got some rock work and the Astro Orbiter as like a visual indication that 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 way lies futuristic yeah, stuff. Theoretically, but, the people mover tracks, but that's it's such a such a nothing of a visual at the moment. Yeah, right? there's there's, so there's no cars on. on it. Right, <laughs> but I think um, I it it almost reminds me a little bit of I just made myself think of the um the very beginning of um the Nightmare Before Christmas the movie when yeah. he walks into the forest. Or, you know, at the very beginning, we start in the forest, but then Jack later walks into that forest and then he steps into a circle and the circles are trees with doors in them and he can choose a door. Pick your pick your door. And he picks the prettiest, shiniest one, of course. Um, But that that the courtyard, the statue courtyard in Main Street at the end of Main Street, USA could be that doorway could be that you look around and you see one, two, three, four different doors that you can enter now thresholds that you can cross and bring yourself into adventure or frontier or fantasy or tomorrow (laughs) exactly though and that's exactly what like the point of the original design was but i think we're going to talk about tomorrowland next like in general and i want to talk and i just wanted to mention before we go into tomorrowland how it doesn't have a door and that makes me kind of upset it's interesting because the other thing that the, the lands don't have, um, Tomorrowland not having a door being its own thing that we're about to get into, but the other thing the lands don't have is like they they are blended together less at the front than they are in the back behind these thresholds. Like they're very distinctly themed at their entrances from the hub, but the back area kind of gets a little muddier. And that's interesting because, like, New Orleans Square kind of being this this connecting, like, like area between Critter Country, uh, Frontierland, Adventureland, and now Galaxy's Edge, and kind of kind of being this big catch-all for all of them as you kind of exit out the back of them. For me, this is like, oh, that's why Disneyland has blenders, is because it has these distinct spokes that then like spread into each other yeah um and kind of and kind of meld with each other and tomorrowland has the problem of a lack of distinct entrance and then also it's kind of like all blender and (laughs) this is this is where we're starting to get a little bit in the weeds with the theory but alice uh, i'll let you take it on this what is the problem with tomorrowland tomorrowland's problem is tomorrowland um, <laughs> Tomorrowland's problem is that every time you finish a new attraction at Tomorrowland that is supposed to seem like the future, it's already outdated. And I mean, absolutely. <laughs> right? Like that's that's a that's a big Tomorrowland problem. And every and and the original idea of Tomorrowland was like it was going to be like a world showcase for Walt Disney to show off like the next bits of technology uh, and what we can accomplish in the future, what the future can be. And it just never quite stayed up to date with how the future was actually turning out. Um, And then like in the late nineties, early two thousands, they tried to give it like a cool Brown and gold um, facelift and give it like a Jules Verne, like retro futurism kind of look. Um, twenty thousand leagues under the sea, and uh, and you know, around the world in eighty days. You know, like steampunky. We, we didn't get attractions for either of those titles, by the way. But yes, that was the vibe. But the vibe, yeah. I'm I'm I'm, I'm naming I'm naming books from that era as yeah. the 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 vibe that they were going for. And then that didn't stick either. And so now we have this kind of weird blend throughout Tomorrowland of, well, are we steampunk or are we retro futurist or are we star wars or are we buzz lightyear or are we like what kind of future are we talking about here and where is my people mover (laughs) or rocket rods i don't care bring something back because now we also have this weird ceiling overhead with a bunch of tracks on it that nobody can go on and it 
it shrinks the land and it makes the, as you said, it makes the whole thing a blend. There's no consistency throughout. And so it all just kind of melds together into a weird melting pot of almost futuristic nonsense. (sighs) I 100% agree with you. And Alice, you and I have had this conversation many times. We will soon be expanding upon and further immortalizing this conversation in our mini-series, which is coming up soon. Uh, It's called Tomorrowland Now. Uh, It's a sequel to Birds of Paradise. (laughs) Uh, And it's also uh, discussing this specific identity problem at greater depth and with uh, a bit more research behind it. Yes, that that will be coming this fall. Yes. But for now, you're right. This is not sustainable for Tomorrowland in keeping an identity. And it's not even like, as you go further back into Tomorrowland, it feels more like other stuff. Tomorrowland's entrance is a confusing three-attraction lineup where each one has a different aesthetic. Uh, Star Tours, the Astro Orbiter, and Buzz Lightyear Astro Blasters all sitting there at the very front all being unique in their vision of science fiction and all barely fitting next to each other. It's odd. Uh, Yes, and Astro Orbiter does have the actual lowest capacity of any Disney. (laughs) To connect it to last week, Astro Orbiters (laughs) is not a people eater in any way whatsoever. It's this very pretty obelisk that stands there (laughs) and takes like only a couple hundred people per hour. It's, yeah, uh, I think I haven't ridden it in, like, 15 years. Yeah, no, it's not worth it. The well, line's too long. Exactly. Uh, and so that is the problem with Tomorrowland and how it doesn't quite fit the Land Blender attraction theory because it is already having trouble blending with itself. Um, but there is a pair of classic attractions that were kind of built and opened in tandem that is worth discussing in this conversation that pretend at being Tomorrowland attractions and that (laughs) at the moment uh, might not qualify and that we might not even say are Tomorrowland attractions. Right. Even, Even not even on a technicality. Like, they simply are not. I think they are technically considered Tomorrowland attractions in that, like, if you are looking at the map, they are color-coded to be Tomorrowland attractions. You know how the map color-code... If you have the official Disney map and then they color-code each attraction. Yeah, I'm aware. um, I do believe it is um, color-coded as a Tomorrowland attraction, both of these rides. They were released at the same time as part of the 1959 Tomorrowland expansion. And they are... Two rides right next to each other that are take up a space. There's a like a dead space in the in the side of the map um, that is the part of the map that connects Tomorrowland to Fantasyland and to um, it's a small world, <laughs> which is separate from Fantasyland but part of it. Um, this like weird section of the park right in the middle on the right hand side of the park is filled by the Matterhorn bobsleds and what is now the Finding Nemo submarine voyage. Formerly just the plain old submarine voyage. Yes. These two attractions baffle me the more that I think about them in this context. Uh, and, and the Matterhorn, to be fair, is on the cover art of this episode. It is one of the premier attractions that I consider a land blender. Uh, but it, it's confusing because of this Tomorrowland branding. Because I always assumed it was a Fantasyland attraction. Right. It has like a cute, like, European, Swiss, um, like, um, aesthetic. The music, the font and the coloring and everything about it is very tied to Fantasyland. The storybook adventure uses like the same font on their signs. Like, yeah. And, and that, that shared aesthetic as well as kind of the shared tone where, like, you know, you can be standing at the castle and the mountain is looming in the distance. And, you know, mountains feature prominently in these fairy tales. So, like, a big spooky mountain out in the distance, it, it works, right? Like, this is kind of a fantasy land thing. 
moreover, uh, the wooden carved railings in the queue. Uh, and the kind of painted animals, flora and fauna, that you kind of see on that that same queue. Yeah, there's a quaintness to it that is very Fantasyland. Yeah. And yet, it's the <laughs> Tomorrowland expansion featuring the Matterhorn bobsleds uh, and uh, an expanded version of Autopia. The monorail was uh, introduced at the same time, as was the now-defunct motorboat cruise. Uh... So, the Matterhorn is Tomorrowland? There used to be a greater connection when the uh, the Skyway went through the Matterhorn. Right. And, and, it, and as far as, like, Walt Disney's idea of Tomorrowland was very, like, transportation-based. <laughs> yeah. You know that guy. Loved his transportations. Um, and that, like, <laughs> the Skyway went through it, and, like, the idea of, like, bobsleds hurtling through a mountain seemed very, like, very cool and futuristic to him, I suppose. I, Nowadays, can, I can see that argument. <laughs> yeah, you know, the guy, the guy loved to train. Um, <laughs> and... Like, famously. <laughs> and so, but nowadays, I think the Matterhorn kind of doesn't really feel futuristic anymore. In fact, I said earlier during our planning session that there's nothing tomorrow about a Matterhorn mountain. Mountains are, like, basically the oldest thing we have. <laughs> Other than oceans. But I'll get to Finding Nemo in a minute. We'll get there in a minute. Uh, <laughs> and, and there are things about... Uh, the Matterhorn bobsleds that were futuristic in their time, as far as like a construction standpoint, right? Building this mm -hmm. big fake mountain. Uh, the tubes that form the tracks were kind of an innovation uh, at the time. So like, that's something. There's a tomorrowness to, to all of that. You know, the proximity to the monorail and the submarines all kind of moving at the same time. I could see where from a certain point of view, we are speaking about tomorrow. And of course, there is this fantasy of jetting off to, you know, Switzerland, to the Alps, to ski the Matterhorn, or to ride a sled down the Matterhorn. And that feels and very... meet the Yeti! <laughs> well, hang on, because that feels very fantasy, doesn't Abom it? <laughs> sorry, Abominable Snowman. You're right, I'm sorry, it's the Abominable. <laughs> um, you know, but like, you know, there's, there's a fantasy to that that feels very futuristic from a 1959 perspective, right? Soon, we'll all be traveling the world and carving up the mountains with some sweet powder, bro. Um, <laughs> what do you think? That's my uh, that's good. No, it's, it's my fifties really snowboard and structure. Uh, uh, so the Matterhorn, though, is a fantastical story featuring the abominable snowman. Yes. If we if we break down the Matterhorn into its story components, a uh, a set of bobsleds is lifted up a mountain on chain lifts. Doesn't make sense to me, but okay. Uh, the Abominable Snowman roars at you. Uh, you escape by sledding down the mountain uh, several more times. The Abominable Snowman uh, threatens you, but does not get you because your bobsled is too fast. And you splash down back at the loading area, right? So that's a fantasy story about escaping a monster in your magical bobsled. Yes. There's not a lot tomorrow to grab onto there. And because of the aesthetics, I feel like the Matterhorn makes a compelling land blender, but a confusing one. Because it's neither tomorrow nor fantasy. It's kind of its own adventure. You know, if I if I had my druthers, I would just throw it in Adventureland, actually. Just, like, <laughs> toss it in there. Toss um, it on in there. But uh, seriously, I mean, like you know, change the aesthetics a little bit and it becomes Expedition Everest and it is in the kind of adventure Animal Kingdom Park. Yeah. Uh, so you've got kind of that problem where this attraction for all of the things about it that make it great doesn't really fit in any of the lands thoroughly enough to call any of them home. Uh, and so its position between lands as a land blender is almost as a, a land anti-blender it just sits <laughs> and is uh, indomitable, like the mountain itself. Uh, and I think that is neat. Uh, it is. Our, our second attraction, which we've already mentioned here, is the submarine voyage featuring Nemo and friends. Um, yeah. Now, this one's, this one's not 
it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the theory. Uh, nor does it really fit Tomorrowland. Yeah. Nor does it fit anywhere else. When, it, <laughs> when the submarine voyage was first built, it was modeled after real nuclear submarines, right? The very original version of the submarine voyage was modeled after, like, actual cool pieces of futuristic submarine technology, right? Yeah, in fact, uh, in the research for this, I found out through Wikipedia, the free <laughs> online encyclopedia that anybody can edit, <laughs> that, uh, you know, part of the original attraction is that you head beneath the North Pole, right? Uh, and by going beneath this ice sheet at the North Pole, the attraction is actually calling to mind a recent expedition at the time of the actual submarine, the USS Nautilus, uh, which happened in 1958, where it departed from Hawaii and went beneath the North Pole. So, like... Incredible. That's very neat, and at the time, must have felt like this brand new, fresh frontier of technological development and exploration of our own planet. However, Alice... <laughs> In my further research and somewhat in my memory of this attraction, because parts of this attraction survived into the mid-90s before a, uh, a prolonged shutdown and then the full-on retheme. Yes. Um, the rest of the story of the original attraction included a trip to the bottom of the sea where mermaids were sighted. Uh, the lost continent of Atlantis was discovered, and of it already course. has representation in the park, and it's a small world, so, you know, why, why are we <laughs> repeating ourselves? A sea serpent was encountered, uh, and then a final and triumphant return to the, surf the surface. So, there's elements of fantasy there. Yeah, fantasy, adventure even, um, again, with the multi-genre you know, journey that we go on. Um, but none of them really being futuristic. <laughs> none of them really belonging in Tomorrowland, kind of belonging everywhere else. Yeah. And therefore nowhere else. <laughs> Interesting, though, that we are holding science fiction to this standard, like, where we're like, it should be futuristic, though, because, like, this was science mixed with fantasy and fiction, right? I mean, in a lot yes. of ways, getting in a rocket ship and encountering aliens is exactly the same as getting in a submarine and encountering mermaids. You it's know, just you are right. The submarine mermaid thing sounds um, very earthy, uh, for lack of a better word. It feels, it feels like, like very present and earthy and ancient uh, in a way that space flight to strange alien worlds uh, doesn't. You're absolutely right. I was being a little short-sighted with my <laughs> definition of what Tomorrowland could be. And maybe that's the maybe that's the idea. Maybe Tomorrowland has failed for so long um because it's been too focused on being about the kind of science fiction that we picture when 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 someone says the word science fiction, everybody thinks space travel. Everybody thinks planets and rocket ships and blasters and lasers and, and things like that. And nobody really thinks about, like, undersea travel, about exploring our own planet, but in the future when our technology is good enough to do so. Maybe, maybe I'm missing the point. Maybe I was wrong. <laughs> and that... Um, having a technology so good that we can explore the depths and insides of the real Matterhorn Mountain in Switzerland will reveal there's been an abominable snowman there the whole time. Maybe if discovering something like the abominable snowman or going down into the ocean and learning about your mermaid friends, um, I don't know if they've got fantastical creatures now that it's Finding Nemo, but it used to be. Um, oh, it's just Finding Nemo now. It's, it's just, just, norm just normal Nemo friends, fish, regular but fish. But they can talk. And they, they have human inner lives because they are, you know, human-ish fish. You know, they, That's cute. They have family structures and they, they <laughs> talk to each other and they have well, emotions. Maybe, maybe then, like, speaking to and understanding the fish is the futuristic part of that then. Maybe I've been looking to the stars when I could be looking at home. Maybe Innoventions had it right all along. <laughs> It was really all about the Honeywell home of the future in Maybe, Interventions. <laughs> yeah, Interventions showed us, like, 
pieces of smart home technology and that didn't really exist yet. Uh, the Carousel of Progress does it too. <laughs> um, at the end, you know, with an oven that speaks to you and follows your voice commands and all of that. Like, maybe that's maybe that's where Tomorrowland needs to refocus up. Maybe it needs to go back to being about what we can accomplish here on on Earth in the future and not where we're reaching to in the stars. I, I don't know. Room, I think there's room for both, but I think that conversation is better held in the future when mm -hmm. we embark upon uh, Tomorrowland Now. Uh, yes. Which, which is going to be quite the project. I will say that I actually kind of like this idea that like science fantasy uh, is something worth experiencing and the the blending of science fiction and science fantasy to kind of be an inspiration to people like explore climb every mountain dive beneath every ocean you know you never know what you're gonna find right here is actually like a really hopeful message so like i'm here for it uh and <laughs> i i could see a Tomorrowland like that that works and perhaps we will draw up a more detailed uh concept for that for the for the miniseries i think that would be a lot of fun um but in the meantime, Alice, there's one more attraction we should mention that we've skirted a little bit within this episode, uh, currently closed for an extended refurbishment and hopefully opening very soon with that refurbishment uh, ready to go. Uh, there is a ride that is about to become, in our professional opinions, if everything goes as planned, uh, the ultimate Land Blender attraction. Yes, I'm really excited to talk about this briefly because it really can become its own episode once we know a little bit more about it. But for now, I think a brief speculation, if we will. If you'll indulge us listeners, we're going to speculate on what could be the ultimate Land Blender attraction. And that is Splash Mountain. Splash Mountain, which is soon to be rethemed to Princess and the Frog which is a film that takes place in... New Orleans. Ah, the real-life city of New Orleans. Yes, not New Orleans. <laughs> but um, New Orleans. The real-life city of famously, New Orleans. Famously, famously the real-life city of New Orleans. And yeah. and if, if, you, if you're not familiar, listener, with the map of Disneyland and you don't know where Splash Mountain is, it sits on the border of... Uh, uh, a, a land that I forgot to mention earlier, I think, um, and New Orleans Square. So it, Splash Mountain sits on the border of New Orleans Square and Critter Country, um, which is a teeny tiny little land up in the corner, um, which now, right now features Splash Mountain and uh, the Winnie the Pooh ride as its only attractions. Yeah, uh, Critter Country is a big question mark for me as far as if it counts as a land or not um, because it feels a lot like a corner of Frontierland slash New Orleans Square for lack of a better word like it just feels like its own little thing where the animal life is cartoons um, and that's fine I, I, it does serve its purpose up there but with the addition of Princess and the Frog to the theming of Splash Mountain what we're going to end up with is a ride that more thoroughly attaches itself to New Orleans Square through the fact that Princess and the Frog must, and famously does, take place in New Orleans. Uh, it is an important part of the story. It's a part of the story's identity. And so now the Mark Twain Riverboat and the Riverboat at the end of Splash Mountain will presumably be one in the same or at least much more closely aligned in terms of, like, what they're doing there, right? right. Uh, now there will be connections between the two attractions, but in New Orleans Square, the animal life, especially the animatronic animal life, is much more photorealistic. And in The Princess and the Frog Ride, when it eventually opens, I'm expecting cartoony animals. So it might yeah. still be a part of Critter Country, by way of New Orleans Square. And that's interesting. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it is really interesting that we might, we might someday see this attraction that is a, a perfect blend of the two lands that it touches and that it will be technically still part of Critter Country so long as Critter Country still remains a thing. Um, 
it's gone through a lot of changes <laughs> over time. Um, and, and that's interesting. It's really interesting that we might get a critter country, cute animals having a grand old time singing and dancing with a real New Orleans feel to the music and the setting and, um, and like the, the story that's like really that like New Orleans is so important to the story and, um, yeah, it could all just be blended together on this neat little mountain. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. And and what's so unique about it is the placement of Splash Mountain at Disneyland facilitates this blending of the lands. If if I am in charge of Disneyland, I am uh, renaming Critter Country to Pooh Corner, and it's now all about Winnie the Pooh. Uh, and Splash Mountain is now directly part of New Orleans Square. That That's if I'm in charge. Right now, Critter Country already feels like a, an afterthought, and when you retheme kind of its premier attraction to be more aligned with New Orleans, I feel like, okay, well, now it's just New Orleans, isn't it? Uh, so it, it might not blend the lands, it might just, like, redefine the lands, redraw the lines on the map. But on the other hand, how cool is it that that has been built in such a way that it is able to happen in the first place? Absolutely. It is it is wild that the, when The Princess and the Frog came out in, what was that, 2008? Um, I don't think we ever thought that Splash Mountain could become or would become The Princess and the Frog ride. Um, but how perfect it is. You, all, you would almost think they planned it. <laughs> but then they, you know, waited like 13 years to announce that they were going to change it. It doesn't feel like a plan so much as right. a happy accident. Right. And I feel like at the end of the day, that's kind of what's the most interesting about talking about Disneyland in this context is that Disneyland is by far the theme park most synonymous with theme parks. It is the prototype. It is the alpha and the omega. It is matter. <laughs> it is antimatter. It is all things to all people. Okay, right. maybe it's not that great, but it, it, it's important, <laughs> right? It, it is one of the most historically significant theme parks in the world, if not the most. And so much about what we think of as, like, cool stuff that Disneyland does kind of comes down to being happy accidents. Things that just happen to fit together in a certain way at a certain time. Things that, when you really think about them, don't exactly fit together, but that are beloved nonetheless. Things that fit within categories and that kind of ride the line between categories. Things like Star Tours, which feel like, yeah, this could totally belong in Tomorrowland, but given the context that there is a Galaxy's Edge, feels like a land blender ride between Tomorrowland and Galaxy's <laughs> Edge, but they're on opposite ends of the theme park. <laughs> like, what does one do with 60, 65 years of history, except say, I can't believe it's held together this well? And isn't it cool how it all turned out? It turned out with a lot of hard work and a lot of brilliant designers and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and a lot of like love and faith from the people that go and trust it and yeah. trust the process. And I, I don't know. Now I'm feeling really grateful that we have access to such a cool place. I agree. And I feel grateful for the people who make it believable and make it happen every day because it is uh, it is a thoroughly underappreciated position to be a cast member. So oh, yeah. To everybody out Huge. there, thank you for yeah. continuing to make this thing happen because it seems like it is a giant mess that could stop working at any moment. And yet... <laughs> It happens every single day. So yeah, that is yeah. that is very powerful. Yeah, huge ups and big thanks to the cast members that, that make it happen. Love, love you. Love you guys. Well, Alice, it sounds like our conversation about Disneyland and its unique land blender attractions has come to an end. But the conversation does continue online online on the internet even we're so thankful to everybody that talks to us and interacts with us 
on our Twitters and on our Discord server. We're so, uh, so online all the time. And we would like to hear more from you. So if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can follow the show at Happy Places Pod. And uh, we are also on Twitter. I'm never not on Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. My Twitter handle is at Buddy underscore Duquesne. Duquesne is spelled D-U-Q-U-E-S-N-E. And I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and on TikTok at Alice White THP for those happy places. And Alice, if the folks out there really liked what we do and they want to support us monetarily, is there a way that they can do that? Absolutely. The best place to do that would be on our Patreon. Patreon.com slash those happy places is the place to be. Uh, We recently did a huge refurbishment of the uh, website. We have um, new tiers, different tiers, um, same good rewards and bonus content available. uh, If you would like to check it out, once again, the website is patreon.com slash those happy places. And Alice, I think I'm going to add some music to this episode. And where would you get that music? All of the music that we use that isn't our theme music comes from Kevin McLeod. The website is incompetech.com, and the music is all licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution license, which simply requires that we say thank you to Kevin and provide the appropriate credits in the show notes. Thank you, Kevin. The appropriate credits are in the show notes. <laughs> yes, thank you so much, Kevin. Uh, even if it wasn't required by the license, I would still say thank you. Your music is beautiful. Uh, buddy, I'm starting to hear a different song, however, rising up in the distance behind us. What uh, What could that be? Is that is that the sound of Golden Gate by the California Feet Warmers featuring Phil Alvin? Oh, well, I do believe you're right. What a song. <laughs> I love this song, and it and all of the other tracks by the Feet Warmers can be found on their website, CaliforniaFeetWarmers.com. Yes, thank you very much to the Feet Warmers for the use of the song. And Alice, thank you very much for doing this episode with me. Yes, thank you so much, buddy. This was really, really, really fun. You really are the brains of this operation. Impossible. (laughs) You have come up with some of the most fun ideas for us to talk about, and you're always good for a classification system. I I really enjoy that. You're my best friend, and this is uh, the time of my life. Alice, I have exactly one brain cell. It uh, only gets anything done by being combined with your exactly one brain cell. (laughs) And when we combine those brain cells, somehow what the scientific classification of that thing is, is a podcast. So uh, I would not do this podcast with anybody else. You are my best friend and favorite co-host. I am so happy that we have these podcasts. This and every every other episode of the podcast is such a gift. So... Thank you again, and here's to many more. And to everyone out there, thank you for listening, and we hope you return to those happy places. 